My name is Erin Kenny. I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. April is IBS Awareness Month. IBS stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. And I actually had someone on Instagram recently ask me, do I have a podcast episode that is solely dedicated to Irritable Bowel Syndrome? And I don't, which is kind of funny considering that is one of the main conditions that I work with in my practice. And it is only appropriate that this month I do a solo episode on it. So today I'm going to be talking about what IBS is. I'm going to be talking about the common symptoms of IBS. Um, I'm going to be talking about the different types, how it's diagnosed, what some of the possible causes are, and how I approach IBS in individuals because it is not as simple as taking a medication or you know taking a supplement or switching your diet. It often is a very multidisciplinary approach which is very important for patients to know because oftentimes patients are just going to a gastroenterologist and they're telling them, okay, go on the low FODMAP diet and that's going to be your fix all or cut out these foods and that's going to fix everything. Or here's an anxiety and depression medication. That's the root cause of your symptoms. So it's really, really important that the, the main takeaway from this episode is that IBS, irritable bowel syndrome is a uh, very complex diagnosis. And to keep in mind, IBS is a syndrome. It is not a disease. And that's really important because when we talk about inflammatory bowel disease, the treatment for those is very different. So with IBS, the first thing that I want to highlight is that there's often a root cause, and it's usually not just one. There's often multiple root causes, whether it's the early life childhood experiences, using lots of antibiotics as a kid, to uh, food sensitivities or improper dietary strategies or deficiencies or hormone imbalance. So it's not usually just one thing. So it's really important that someone that you're working with um, has a, a team approach and is taking a look at you as a holistic individual. So IBS is considered a functional GI disorder, and it features reoccurring abdominal pain or discomfort, and oftentimes we'll see changes in bowel habits, so things like constipation, diarrhea. We often see alternating constipation and diarrhea, and that's why there are four main subtypes of IBS. So there's IBS-C, which is mostly constipation, then there's IBS-D, which is, which is mostly diarrhea. And then we have the mixed, which is both constipation and diarrhea. And now we also have the type four, which is IBSU, which is if you don't fit into the any above, it would just be unclassified. So some of the common symptoms of IBS, um, in addition to constipation, diarrhea, one is the inability to empty your bowels. So feeling like you go to the bathroom, but you're not quite feeling like you're completely emptying. Indigestion is another one, typically as a result of constipation. So if you think about it, when things are backed up in your GI system, 
it's going to cause food to kind of sit there and you might have some regurgitation or just this kind of impact on the upper GI system because of that. This might also lead to nausea. The person might experience excessive amounts of gas, having really urgent need to go to the bathroom. So when you're out and about and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I have to go to the bathroom right now. An example of this could also be before a stressful event or getting really excited. Um, Also abdominal pain um, and cramping. So this is one that I do often see as well. Sometimes patients will say, oh, I have this gnawing pain or this uh, aching pain in maybe my lower descending colon area. I hear that one a lot. And then anxiety and depression are also two very common symptoms of IBS. And this is you know, definitely complex in the sense that IBS can really impact somebody's mental health, their quality of life, if they're nervous to go out or afraid that they are going to have, you know, an episode or maybe they just feel bloated all the time and they're uncomfortable, right? You're uncomfortable, you're bloated, you want to be able to put on a pair of jeans and not feel like you're completely suffocating. So, anxiety and depression could be related to having your symptoms and that impacting your mental health. But also much of what I've talked about on this podcast is that connection between the gut and the brain. And when you have disturbances in your GI tract, this can actually alter the connection between the gut and the brain and create symptoms of anxiety and depression. Our gut produces serotonin, it produces melatonin and dopamine and GABA, which makes us feel calm. And then we also have that physical connection between the gut and the brain, which is that vagus nerve, which research has shown can also significantly impact our mental health and well-being. How is IBS diagnosed? So the diagnosis for IBS is dependent on the Rome criteria. So doctor will use this criteria to uh, basically give this patient a diagnosis, and it includes the severity of the symptoms as well as the amount of time that you've had those symptoms. So if you want to get more details on the actual diagnosis, you can Google the Rome criteria for IBS. The most important part of this episode, in my opinion, is what are the possible causes of IBS? Because we, we know about the diagnosis. The diagnosis might give us some you know, peace of mind of knowing, okay, there is something here that does make me feel validated, but moving forward, right? This is not a death sentence that this is something where you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. IBS does not actually damage the mucosa of the the gut lining, but the root cause might be harmful, especially to your long-term health and mental health. Dysbiosis is the first cause that we'll talk about. So dysbiosis is when you have this imbalance of bacteria in the gut, and this is a big deal. If you have dysbiosis or imbalance of bacteria, we know that the gut is connected to our immune system, our mental health, our hormones, and having this imbalance can create a lot of inflammation and food sensitivities. And the way that I look at dysbiosis in my practice is through stool testing. So I do a a PCR DNA stool analysis with my patients. 
Some of the symptoms of dysbiosis are things like feeling tired all the time, having acid reflux, finding food sensitivities, inflammation, achy joints, acne, skin rashes, psoriasis, ADHD, anxiety, and depression. And these also coincide with what we call leaky gut. And that's when that the lining of the GI tract is more permeable than it should be. So dysbiosis and leaky gut, I often see patients with both of those conditions because, again, having an overgrowth of certain bacteria or not having enough of these really beneficial bacteria can can really make someone feel very poorly. Dietary-wise, uh, reasons for dysbiosis could be, you know, consuming a very uh, bland diet, meaning they don't have a lot of diversity in there. They eat the same things every day. They might not be eating enough. They might be on a keto diet or a restrictive diet, which we know in the research can actually create lower levels of beneficial bacteria. So there's many reasons why the diet can contribute to dysbiosis, but that is very individualized. SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, is also a very overlooked and common reason why someone might be diagnosed with IBS. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can affect up to 80% of patients with IBS. This is kind of a chicken or the egg type of situation. Did the person have IBS? And then because they had this altered motility, constipation is a very common um, you know, manifestation of SIBO because you have food just sitting in the gut. It's just sitting there. And then we have fermentation, which can lead to that overgrowth of the bacteria in the small intestine where it shouldn't be. So SIBO um, symptoms are similar to IBS, and sometimes that can lead to the misdiagnosis of IBS. SIBO symptoms would be things like bloating, worse, especially at the end of the day. So some people might experience bloating as soon as they wake up. With SIBO, you typically notice that the end of the day is the worst. Burping is a big one as well. Constant burping after meals, um, feeling uh, better when you're on the low FODMAP diet is also a sign that you could also have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because these high FODMAP foods are types of carbohydrates that feed the bacteria in the small intestine where they shouldn't be. So that will exacerbate your symptoms. Feeling worse after taking probiotics or eating fermented foods, uh, feeling uncomfortable or full or having gas right after eating, loose stools. These are all symptoms of SIBO. Loose stools would likely be a uh, not a methane-dominant SIBO, but um, methane-dominant methane SIBO, we typically see constipation. Um, and so with the hydrogen SIBO, we typically see more of the diarrhea. It's not always the case. There is still some overlap there, but I do often see that to be more common in my practice. So testing for SIBO in my practice will look like doing a breath test. So this is something you can do at home. I order mine online for my patients, or they have a gastroenterologist typically who we're working with as well who can order that. And it does require them to go on a diet for, you know, two days or so, a much more bland diet. Then they have to drink a solution, whether it's lactulose or glucose. 
and then they have to blow into uh, this little device and the results um, will come back uh, whether they're positive or negative. And you can go listen to my SIBO podcast episode. There are a lot of nuances to the testing and the interpretation. Nonetheless, that is one of the main uh, ways for us to diagnose SIBO. There are also other nutrition deficiencies that are seen along with SIBO. So things like iron and B12 and folate. So I'm typically doing blood testing with clients as well to see that they also might have those clinical manifestations. And those are kind of like those red flags, right? Of, okay, so you're having the symptoms of SIBO, your breath test came back positive, your iron and folate deficient, you know, you have the, the GI, the GI symptoms so that we're taking a very holistic approach. We're not just looking at one value. And then we have food poisoning. And this is an interesting one as being one of the root causes of IBS. A significant amount of research has shown that a, there is a clear link between food poisoning and irritable bowel syndrome, especially IBSD, which is the diarrhea type. A recent review conducted at the Mayo Clinic of over 45 studies showed that one in every nine patients who experience food poisoning develop IBS. So what I'm always looking for when I'm working with a client is that moment where they say, I went to Mexico, I ate sushi, and I felt awful for you know, two weeks, I went on antibiotics and I just haven't been the same ever since. So there could be these instances where an individual gets food poisoning and this can significantly impact their GI tract and their gut microbiome. And that is again, where the stool testing can be really helpful because we can often see things like pathogenic overgrowth that have occurred due to the food poisoning. And then we have food sensitivities, which is another root cause of IBS-type symptoms. So food sensitivities and food allergies are very different. I've done an episode on this, so you can go back and listen to that one more in detail. But symptoms of food sensitivities would be things like bloating, diarrhea, constipation, headaches, fatigue, joint pain, certain skin conditions like eczema, psoriasis, depression, anxiety, and certain nutrient deficiencies like anemia and B12 deficiency. So you're probably seeing a lot of overlap at this point of uh, different, different symptoms of these root causes, which is why it can be very difficult for just the average individual to pinpoint what it is that is, you know, really exacerbating their IBS symptoms. And most people are very quick to judge gluten and dairy. Uh, you know, those tend to be the biggest um, targets. A lot of that is is definitely rooted in some research that we have. You know, lactose intolerance is very common. Um, you know, gluten intolerance and sensitivity is definitely a real clinical um, diagnosis. However, when I'm working with patients, we're always looking at what the sources of those foods are. So is it actually a food sensitivity to gluten or is it the way that you're eating gluten? Is it in the form of pizza or, you know, highly processed breads or pastries or things like that? 
Um, there are other food sensitivities, things like soy. There are, you know, things like nuts and legumes that can really irritate people. So some people might adopt a plant-based lifestyle and find that their symptoms actually get worse. And there's obviously a lot of inter-individuality when it comes to dietary change. And then we also have nervous system dysfunction as a root cause of IBS. People exposed to stressful events, especially in early childhood, tend to have more symptoms of IBS. And I know that this is, for me, one of the main um, reasons why I have to be incredibly um, focused on taking care of my gut health is because I did experience a lot of stress as a child, um, and that did show up a lot in my digestive system. And I know that, you know, over the course of my life, and this is why I started my practice nutrition rewired is because I've had to really put in a lot of work on rewiring my nervous system and getting myself to a place where I have things that can support my mental health. Early stressors can alter how our genes express themselves. So very, very powerful. So everything that's happening in those early life years, whether it's stress or trauma, whether it's antibiotics, maybe you were breastfed versus, I mean, sorry, maybe you were bottle fed versus breastfed. Maybe you were born via C-section all of those things can impact your central nervous system and your risk for things like anxiety and depression and how your body will respond to stress. Now, this concept of how your genes express themselves is what we call epigenetics. So our, our genes obviously set us up for predisposition, but our environment, the foods we eat, the people we surround ourselves with, the thoughts we have, those can actually alter genetic expression. And early life stressors can change the way our brain processes information and establishes these neurological pathways that don't facilitate a healthy stress response or, or a healthy and functional digestive tract. Stress is never good for the digestive tract. When our body is under stress, your brain is not concerned with digestion, right? It's the, the least of the priority is if you are being chased by a tiger or a bear, the last thing your body is going to be focusing on is digesting your food. So when you think of it from that sense, you know, we don't have to be being chased by a tiger. This could be I have 10 minutes for lunch. I'm just going to answer my emails while I'm on my computer, while I'm eating my lunch and get through so I can get to my next meeting. That is stress. Your body is preoccupied with deadlines or tasks and you are not being present and focused with your food. It could be excitement. You could be excited or uh, nervous about a presentation. That is a form of stress. You could be over-exercising. I've seen this a lot coming out of the pandemic. A lot of us um, maybe adopted these uh, air quote healthier lifestyles where we were more physically active because we had all this time and now we're going back into real life and we're working, we're now more social. And on top of that, we're still trying to maintain that same activity because it made us feel so good at the time. 
So I've seen this a lot actually coming out of um, a lot of the the COVID stuff that we just went through. Not that it's over, but you know, a lot of these back to normal lifestyles are are kind of struggling and they're not sustainable, and that is a form of stress on the body as well. So unfortunately, stress is something that we are going to be encountering all the time, Um, but we really want to prioritize taking care of our mental health because if we are stressed all the time, it's going to reduce our immune function, it's going to increase inflammation, it's going to alter our brain and nervous system and neurotransmitter function, and it's most certainly going to increase our stress hormones, things like cortisol, it can throw off your thyroid, your DHEA levels, your entire hormonal, physiological, mental system is impacted by stress. And I know for sure that stress is one of the main causes of me having an IBS flare-up. So when I'm working one-on-one with clients, some of the tips that I will give them in terms of reducing stress in terms of the things that we can control, right? Because that's one of the most important things to focus on is we can't control the fact that, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic that, you know, really just rocked so many people and and disrupted their lives and lots of loved ones. Uh, But there are so many things that we can control. We can reduce our time on social media. We can spend more time outside, even if it's going for a five-minute walk first thing in the morning to get some fresh air and sunlight, engaging in activities that we enjoy. Uh, This is great that, you know, in certain areas of the world, things are opening up more, and this might be more opportunity to start picking up some hobbies and getting out of the house, Um, you know, especially for someone like myself. I've been working in my kitchen for the past uh, two years. Uh, So trying to get out of the house and, and engage with things that you enjoy or people that you enjoy. Breath work and meditation. I find that my clients hate when I tell them to do breath work and meditation, but that is one of the best things for calming down the central nervous system. If our body, our digestive tract is not receiving oxygen, it's not receiving the essential aspect of what it needs to properly function. Now, you don't have to do a 13-minute meditation. This could be a two-minute breathing exercise that you do at your desk in between calls, for example. And the last one that I do find is really helpful with a lot of my clients is when we're focusing on healing the gut. And of course, we're working on dietary strategies like eating balanced meals, not skipping meals, having protein, carbohydrate, and fruit or veggie at every meal. We're also going to cut back on these high-intensity activities. I've worked with patients who are training for marathons. I've worked with patients who love CrossFit. I've worked with patients who do all different types of exercises. One of the worst activities for your body when you are under an IBS flare-up is high-intensity exercise, and that would constitute things like running where you're jostling your stomach uh, while you're running or things like CrossFit where you're really lifting heavy weights and doing these quick um, dramatic movements. Some of the best exercises for IBS are going to be things like yoga, walking, 
Uh, things like biking even is much easier with IBS flare-ups because you're not you know, jostling up and down your stomach contents. Those are some of the best activities. So when I'm working with patients, we'll typically incorporate more of those slower movement, also things like Pilates. And this is why in my group coaching program, I don't do high intensity activity exercises every week. I'm doing Pilates with my group coaching clients. I'm doing yoga and breath work. I have experts coming on doing pelvic floor therapy workshops for them. And these are the activities that tell your body okay, this is good. We like healthy movement. We like moving the blood. It helps move things through the digestive system and keeps us regular from a bowel movement perspective, but it's not adding stress to the body when that is the last thing that the body needs. There are some really um, helpful dietary and supplement strategies for IBS in general and some of those things that I use in my practice are uh, vitamin D, Research shows that vitamin D deficiency is associated with much higher risk and symptoms of IBS. So always get your vitamin D checked. I use uh, blood testing in my practice for vitamin D if the, the patient can't get it through their primary care. Also peppermint, peppermint oil. Um, I get these little capsules through Fullscript, which is the company I use for my clients uh, to basically give them discounted supplements. Peppermint can be really helpful at just kind of relaxing the GI tract, um, antispasmodic, meaning it just kind of helps, again, calm the gut down. Ginger is a really great um, you know, addition in my practice because ginger is a prokinetic. It stimulates the movement of digestion. It's also very anti-inflammatory, anti-nausea, and it has you know, a multitude of different benefits. So peppermint, vitamin D... Uh, ginger CBD is also really beneficial, especially when we're dealing with a nervous system dysfunction. CBD has been a really great tool for people who struggle with anxiety, um, especially patients with IBSD, the diarrhea type. It can really help to, you know, calm things down and slow down the motility a little bit in certain situations. Another tool that is really helpful um, is, of course, probiotics, which is a loaded topic, and it will depend on, you know, if the person has SIBO, uh, you know, what else is going on in their gut. So the testing that we do will depend on what type of probiotic we might incorporate into there. And then in terms of dietary strategies for IBS... I am not quick to recommend the low FODMAP diet. The low FODMAP diet is very restrictive. It cuts out a lot of really healthy foods and important nutrients. And that doesn't mean I never use it in my practice. It just means that I am not uh, typically jumping right to that as most physicians might. They might throw a client on the low FODMAP diet, but that can actually be very harmful. So I always start with the groundwork of, okay, are you eating every two to three hours? Are you having a balanced meal, protein, carbohydrate, fruit, or veggie? Are you eating enough? Are you skipping meals? So we want to make sure we have just that foundation. Are you getting enough omega-3 fats? So things like uh, high-fat fish. Are you taking a supplement if you don't like fish? That's also really important for the diversity of your gut microbiome, also essential for mental health, which we now know can significantly impact the GI tract. Kiwis, 
Kiwis are, uh, you know, a definite, definite staple on my social media presence. I always talk about how I eat the skin of the Kiwis and people have tagged me showing me, look, I'm trying the skin. It doesn't taste weird. It's more convenient, but Kiwis are an excellent remedy for constipation and research has supported that two Kiwis a day have been associated with improved, um, bowel movements. So eat the skin, and if you try it, let me know (laughs) if you're brave enough. Of course, always wash the outside of the kiwi. And then there's the fiber aspect of it. So I see clients who are either on opposite ends of the spectrum. They're eating too much fiber. They're not eating enough fiber. So too much fiber can absolutely cause you to have IBS-like symptoms. Lots of gas, lots of bloating. The clean eating, I'm doing air quotations, the clean eating movement can make you feel a lot worse. Sometimes you need more of a balance of some of those bland, easier to digest foods in addition to the healthy fibers found in things like fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and so forth. So balance meals, balance snacks, balance your blood sugar, don't skip meals, really focusing on stress management. And then of course, there's these little nutrition and supplement strategies that can help in addition to those that are supportive of the root cause. So treating the SIBO, working on the mental health side of things, maybe that's adding in some magnesium for stress or sleep uh, or what have you. I hope this episode was helpful. I have been working with patients who have IBS for over seven years now, and the majority of these patients do have some level of dysfunction in not just one system of the body. It's usually nervous system, immune system, hormonal system. And that is why I started my private practice because I knew that I needed to take a holistic approach and spend extra time with my patients to really get to the multiple root causes of these symptoms and make sure that we're addressing it from a holistic perspective. IBS can significantly impact quality of life. So if you are struggling with IBS or any sort of digestive disorders, I can understand what that's like. I've been there and I still have to practice many different things that I preach in order to keep my gut healthy, but know that there are definitely things that you can do to improve your quality of life and don't ever let a doctor undermine your symptoms or downplay your symptoms because there is hope and there are ways to manage your symptoms to improve your quality of life. With that being said, my group coaching program is strictly geared towards improving gut health, and most of the patients in my program have IBS. I am now on my third round of group coaching and getting ready to decide on the next date for uh, the fourth one. So if you're interested, you can go to my website, nutritionrewired.com. We meet every single week for an hour. You will learn everything gut health hormone related, um, really how to optimize your energy, your mental health, um, and of course, digestive health along the way. On my website, Nutrition Rewired, you can also find my cookbooks, my gut healthy cookbooks, my CBD oil, and you can also book a discovery call if you just want to chat. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.